Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we steadfastly read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are dense packages of beautiful, engaging prose. They serve the essential function of taking a film so steeped, nay, inundated, in mythology that it detracts from a story's central adventure and cunningly compartmentalizes these elements into palatable halves. In a novelization, luxuriating chapters can gently unpack the history and politics of a fantasy world, so that when subsequent chapters focus solely on the heart-pounding, bloodshed whiz-bang of combat, the thrilling adventure sits fully contextualized in a reader's mind, its stakes clear and essential. Novelizations cannot, however, help a reader keep all these characters' made-up names straight, so silly and interchangeable do they all sound. In the end, we can only ask novelizations to do so much. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Hannah Blackman. I'm Johnny Pomato. And I'm Andrew Marco. Willow is a 1988 fantasy film directed by Ron Howard. It was produced by George Lucas, who originated its story. The film stars Warwick Davis as Willow, a peaceful farmer of the Nelwyn race, who is swept up in a bloody war for power when a strange baby washes up on his property. His love for the child outweighing his fear of the outside world, Willow and a band of warriors venture into the lands of the violent Dakini people to bring the infant to safety. Unbeknownst to Willow and his eventual ally Mad Mardican, Val Kilmer, a very handsome, a human-sized man, the baby girl is the only hope for a kingdom long ago consumed by evil. <laughs> Sorry. In undertaking this quest, our heroes court the entrance of evil's forces into their lives. The novelization of Willow was written by Wayland Drew, based on a screenplay by Bob Dolman from a story by George Lucas. It was published by Valentine Books and Del Rey in February 1988. Though there were no sequels to the film Willow, George Lucas and author Chris Claremont created the tertiary tomes, trademarked Shadow Moon, Shadow Dawn, and Shadow Star, also known as the Chronicles of the Shadow War. These books detail further adventures of the main characters of Willow, now with Sorsha, an evil princess who turns good, included in their fold. And I've heard those books don't have a ton to do about Willow, actually. Yeah, at one point I'll read the plot synopsis <laughs> of one of those books. It seems like surprisingly low stakes <laughs> great and i would like to say that you do not need to apologize for uh not being able to get through the synopsis of the movie uh with well, without breaking into laughter because no, i think that's very normal because i glanced over at andrew overby who was like smiling a lot and i was just like caught up in the moment <laughs> i liked the movie and the book like okay. i want to get that off off the start <laughs> I'm also like setting a goal for myself here because uh, authorized tertiary tomes is not trademarked at the time of recording. So I just got to do that by the time oh. this thing drops. <laughs> I thought that that was like a Willow specific tertiary tome. Like that's what they're called <laughs> as opposed to like, that's an us thing. I love it. If you recall from um, our most fun time that we ever had together, <laughs> tertiary tomes was the <laughs> sub podcast in which we covered Good Burger to Go. Oh. I'm sorry, I was unconscious during that, actually. <laughs> it's it's amazing to me that you would trademark tertiary tomes before authorized novelizations <laughs> podcast. 
We're doing it. I love this for us. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so this author guy. Who is Waylon Drew? <laughs> Waylon Miller oh God, Drew. so long. Andrew. I do my sorry, homework. I'm, I'm a good little schoolboy. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm going to zip. <laughs> All right. Who is Waylon Drew? Wayland Miller Drew was a Canadian author born. Sorry, I'm breaking now. I'm good. Did he die? I'm good. I'm good. No, oh, he, he no, he did. To America. He did. He oh. did die. And I, I will get to the point that I could, just could not find anywhere on the internet like how he perished. This is a very oh, well kept secret. Was um, it another insect death? Yeah, yeah. Not. It was by ant. <laughs> Maybe he didn't die. He was just transformed into an animal, and so no one's heard or seen from him since. Yes, although if that were true, the animal would have an insanely annoying voice. So oh, we would you're know. right, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's let's do this again. <laughs> Who is Waylon Drew? Wayland Miller Drew was a Canadian author born in Oshawa, Ontario in 1932. Drew had a robust career in education concurrent to his success as an author. Around age 30, Drew became a high school teacher, later working for a time at the Ontario Ministry of Education. During this time, he published several of his own novels, most notably the Earthring Trilogy, a, quote, post-apocalyptic story of a group of scientists who set up an experiment trying to keep the people that they're watching in a less developed state so that they never reach the point in civilization where they're able to destroy mankind. Now, I want to note that I'm quoting right now from a Goodreads review, and I really enjoy the turn this review takes where it goes... This book follows the scientists as well as the people on the mainlands. There's much action, as well as politics. And partway through, you figure out how it will end, and you feel self-satisfaction, as it does turn out that way. <laughs> Part of the experience of reading the book for everyone, this person has decided, is getting ahead of the book and feeling smart about it. Still, many contend that Drew's first novel, The Wabino Feast, remains his most superlative work. While rooted in northern Ontario, the story indicts modern industrial civilization as an extension of the European colonization of Canada by depicting an entire society's fall into ruin. In her essay, Canadian Monsters, Some Aspects of the Supernatural in Canadian Fiction, Margaret Atwood noted that Drew's use of the aboriginal, aboriginal Wabino revealed a concern, quote, with man's relationship to his society and to himself, as opposed to his relationship with the natural environment, end quote. And she concluded that Drew's novel combined, quote, both concerns in a rather allegorical and very contemporary fashion, end quote. It seems, and I'm fully editorializing here, that the through line of Drew's work, Willow included, is the conflation of humanity's disregard for the planet with the malicious actions humans take towards one another, in presenting both side by side, Drew implies again and again that these ideas are never mutually exclusive, because indulging in selfishness and greed is a pervasive habit that poisons all of a culture's wells. In addition to his original works, Wayland Drew wrote the novelizations of Corvette Summer, Dragon Slayer, Batteries Not Included, and Willow. Drew and his wife Gwendolyn lived in Bracebridge, Ontario, with their four children until Drew's death in 1998. And like I said, I couldn't figure out how he died, and you guys know that I love to get way too personal with these, so I was very let down by that. Maybe it was just natural causes. Hey, he was 66. I mean, it, it's, it could have been. 
You know, that's the sweet spot where you can say something was natural causes. Anyway, yeah. Hannah Blackman, you you recommended or requested that we do this book because you have a copy of it. But then as it started to come closer to the date when we were going to be recording, you seemed to be very reluctant to read it. So how did you come across this copy of Willow? Well, I won it at a comedy show. I attended a live show of the George Lucas talk show, which used to be live at the UCB Theater in New York. And at one point, because I love novelizations, I was like, I would like the prize, please. Uh, and it was a copy of Willow. Hmm. And I was like, I've never seen Willow. So I didn't like hurry to read it. And then this was a good chance to do so. There you go. And then I made all you guys read it. What manner of contest were you in where you won by requesting that you win? <laughs> well, the fun, thing, the fun thing about the George Lucas talk show in the iteration that I attended it is that often you would get to like the end of the show and there would be a lot of prizes left over and Mr. George Lucas would go, uh, I don't know, who, who wants it the most? Who wants it? And if you were like <laughs> close enough to the stage and enthusiastic enough, he would just like throw it to you. And then it's a real, like, I won, question mark, situation? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so in that vein, I won a novelization of Willow. I also was handed an entire complete set of Pepsi Star Wars trading cards, which Ooh. I recently got rid of. Oh. I didn't want all of them, but they were handed to me, so <laughs> what can you do? Yeah, I'm assuming you kept any that had Ben Kenobi on them. You know, I actually didn't flip through them all because I'm a bad person. I was just like, these have been sitting on a shelf, unlooked at. I don't like Pepsi. It's bad. I don't want this in my life anymore. And I just, you know, pulled the trigger and threw them out. There's some connection I'm not making. Why would Pepsi cards have a Star Wars character on them? They had some sort of tie-in. I remember around mm -hmm. Phantom Menace because the, yeah. there were Pepsi cans with like Yoda and Darth Maul and everything. Oh, Yeah. I remember the uh, the commercial with a little CGI saying uh, 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 saying Misa Jaja Binks here for comic relief. Yeah, wow, that's uh, twenty two <laughs> years old. Oh man, I feel great about that. So, Hannah, you mentioned you'd never seen Willow before you oh. asked for the prize of Willow. Correct. Uh, I want to kind of put that out there to everyone else because I, like Hannah, had never experienced Willow before this podcast you know i'd seen some sort of ilm documentary back in the day that highlighted the morphing sequence as a mm. kind of interesting special effects evolution at the time but other than that i knew very little other than there was some warwick davis fantasy action that i was not watching i want to say before we go much further that i'm pretty positive it's warwick davis and that the second w is not pronounced it's also pronounced inundated. What I said inundated is is that yes, but that's an inflection issue. Whereas, it's wrong, like, though. You, you know what? I'm gonna say I had an inflection issue, Andrew. Though. <laughs> I I just mean an inflection they run issue in my family. I, I just mean that's like an emphasis issue versus pronouncing a, a letter versus not pronouncing it, right? Sure. Okay, we'll do it your way. Okay, let's all Look, watch I'm ready. both seasons of anyway. Life is Short to settle this. Um. I am ready to grow as a person and adopt <laughs> inundated as my new pronunciation. Thank you. Andrew, stop trying to delay the inevitable. Had you seen Willow before this? 
Oh, I, I shouldn't keep talking yet. I'll answer last. Johnny, had you seen Willow before this, and how did you feel? Willow was a very sort of important film to me because uh, uh, as everyone uh all listeners uh, remember i'm i'm the old one I'm, I'm very old and uh willow i think is one of the first uh live action films that i remember seeing theatrically that wasn't disney it wasn't like you know the muppets or something uh i i very distinctly remember seeing the ads on tv for willow and being just captivated by the uh, sword and sorcery aspect of it, which I had really only seen in animated form, like, you know, the sword and the stone, the Disney film. And, uh, and I remember seeing the two headed dragon and there was a guy whose face was a skull. And then I saw the movie and found out it was a, a helmet mask thing. It's like, Oh, okay. That makes more sense. I thought he was a, 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 a skeleton. Um, but yes, if I only he was a skeleton. Right? I was so disappointed when he took off the, the mask in the movie. And it's like, that oh, it's just an old movie. guy? Uh but uh yes, I was very uh captivated by this movie by at a young age. Uh and uh I really loved it at the time, even though watching it now, I can't believe it held my attention so much because it I, I I had a harder time uh as an adult. I, I probably watched it for the first time in twenty-five years. Uh recently uh, to prepare for this. Uh, but I do still have quite a bit of uh, nostalgia to some very specific moments in the film. Like like just uh, images of uh, uh, Val Kilmer in the, uh, in the cage and, uh, and Willow doing magic at the festival. These are things that were like very etched in my brain uh, when I saw it as a kid. Uh, and then so much of the, the, the large swaths of the movie uh, did not kind of stay in my head like i i couldn't remember really like what this was about other than he he's taking a baby somewhere and uh now that i have uh watched the movie and read the entire novelization i'm still not crystal clear as to what it's about um, <laughs> uh, and, and i i will say i finished reading this novelization about half an hour ago now and i have already forgotten all of the characters names. yes so uh from now on i'll be referring to well okay i know willow i know mad martigan and then I'll be saying, like, uh, the brownie that's Kevin Pollack, the brownie that's Rick Overton, uh, Skullface, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Magic Goat Lady. I, I, I just can't be bothered to remember all the names. Isn't Skullface's name just Kale? Kale, Kale is a pretty easy one, I should Kale, say. Kale, yeah. <laughs> Johnny, you were saying, we were talking earlier today, you were saying that you were having trouble keeping the character's name straight, which I totally also did um but you guys have probably noticed by now that if you talk to me the day of a record i will just take your opinion and claim it as my own and put it in the <laughs> intro <laughs> there you go. i had no Lesson problem learned. with the names i think because i read the book first and so like a word is much easier for me than listening and trying to catch mm -hmm. a name so i was like in reading yes i get it in watching no i don't and then putting those two things together didn't always fit but Perfectly. even when there's like a normal sounding name like Eric, it's like, oh, it's Eric. It's like, it's spelled A-E-I-R-I-Y-K. -E I, I, I can't believe that's pronounced Eric. Yeah. That guy's like, name is Eric. 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 Yeah. Eric. <laughs> like, this is the thing. is like reading the book, I had such like a clear, exciting concept of like all these people and all these characters. And it was so like, cool and fun. And my biggest surprise in watching the movie I was like, wait, the brownies are just little human beings? Mm -hmm. I thought they were like, I don't know if I can describe this properly, but like, 
vulture goblins, mm. kind of. Sort of a <laughs> like dark so crystal thing, yeah. Kind of, but like tiny, like mm-hmm. little... And I was like, oh, they're just dudes? Okay. There, and that was a series of that. Just <laughs> like comedians in San movie. Francisco. I felt the <laughs> same way when they, early on in the movie and book reference trolls mm. and you're like i know what a troll is and then chewbacca shows up in the third <laughs> yeah. like, oh what so wo- they're wookies in this universe i guess yeah they're wookies with that uh th- th- their their faces really remind me of of another uh movie too yeah they, i mean it's a little the 2001 um apes from from the opening mm. of that yeah I think it's really confusing that the brownies are just tiny people because the whole idea for the book already is what if there are people that are a normal height and then there's yeah. a whole race that's shorter than them. So for then there to be another and we have literal like Stuart Little people, it just feels like the same idea again. Yeah, and like... Then there's fairies who are also just little tiny people. So there's a lot of different tiny people. And I guess I was expecting a little more like fantasy creature societies. Yeah. At some point in the movie, there should, some giant should show up to dwarf Val Kilmer to just continue the theme. It's like, oh no, we're all just, you know, very fishes of various sizes in various ponds. (laughs) That would have been good. One thing that struck me in reading the book uh, as opposed to uh, watching the movie is that I guess is Peck the race that Willow is or or the uh, the species? Oh, it's like a it's a I derogative it's a derogatory. Term. Well, that's term. what I yeah. thought because in the movie I felt like only Mad Mardigan ever calls him Peck. It's like oh yeah, it's like a uh, uh, it's a slur. But in this, mm-hmm. everyone calls him Peck, including the people who seem to like Willow. So I, I thought like oh maybe that's just what he is. But yeah, I always thought like He's you're a, a you're a Peck, like a speck. You're a you're a you're just I, that I tiny think... thing. But no one's have, I'm getting a little, you know, sociology professor here, but no one's have willfully remained separate from the rest of these races. Yeah, they're hobbits. And so. Wait, wait, wait. They're they're what, Andrew? Marco? They're basically just hobbits. What's a hobbit? What's a, I've I've (laughs) never heard, I I don't know. This is a totally foreign concept to me. This is a truly original. Yeah. We don't know what a hobbit is. Um, Willow the Nelwyn, our most famous fantasy character. <laughs> but they've they've basically been a, apart from all other races for a long time. So I think it's pretty true to life that when you've only kind of like, not me personally, I'm a, a very uh, open-minded person, uh, but um, when, okay, when a group of people <laughs> have only heard of another group of people, you know, when you grow up not seeing that group at all, and then they wander into your life i think the potential for racism is extremely high um and it, it not even being like hateful racism it just being like the type of racism where it's like i don't even realize that this is wrong type of thing you know yeah. um and i think that it makes total sense that when a nelwyn wanders into the rest of the world everybody's like oh look at that little peck what is going on with that it's not defensible. Another reason that I was like, I think the brownies are little vulture goblins is everyone's like, ew, get that thing out of here. It's disgusting. And yeah. I was like, they must look like little gross globs of mud or something. They certainly <laughs> don't look like little people. And they're, uh, the brownies are also referred to as, as almost a frightening creature. Like people are afraid yeah. of them. Like, oh, they'll 
get you and they'll peck your eyes out or uh, or tickle you to death. And yeah, but once you see them in the movie, and they're incredibly not In the movie, they're just like presented as like slightly less advanced society. Yeah. Like they're like prehistoric man almost, mm-hmm. but tiny. Uh, Andrew, since you were the first person to use the H word, I mean, we should discuss that, the, yes, they are hobbits. And not just that, this whole thing, this whole story is George Lucas riffing on Lord of the Rings, except the ring is a baby. And uh, how do we feel about this I'd say often one-to-one comparison between, uh, you know, uh, th- I mean, this was, I- I'd say, the, the film, the uh, the best Tolkien adaptation that cinema had seen up until this point. It just happened to be kind of a ripoff. I would say it works in a sense because it's not as expansive. It's a pretty small story, ultimately. Mm-hmm. It feels sort of just like a classic uh, you know, fantasy, simple, you know, castle, evil, witch queen kind of story. Whereas if it tried to get as deep and historied as Lord of the Rings, it might be a little too much. Because as you say, you know, we don't really even quite understand the story and why this baby is that important. We just sort of know that she's a good thing in a world of bad. Mm-hmm. So I think the simplicity of it helps it in that regard even though it's very much a riff on tolkien it does help it but it's also uh it is a much smaller scale that i think that both the film uh and the book never quite give a good representation of how large is this world how like to me like willow's village and the crossroads is that like you know union square to brooklyn like it doesn't seem like it's a uh i I just don't get much of a sense of a journey in uh, both the film and I'd say to a lesser extent the book. I think the book does a better job of, of sort of uh, feeling like a, a quest a, uh, uh, with the passage of time and the, uh, and the traversal elements. Uh, but in the film, I do feel like I, I can't tell how big this world is and how close uh, these people or these, uh, the, these creatures and races are to one another. Uh, it all feels just a little like there's, there's dots on a map and uh, each one is a set piece for uh, some you know, big action sequence. I think that the page count for Lord of the Rings or just the volume of film, depending on whether you're reading or watching it, is really crucial to the experience of the story of Lord of the Rings. Because, look, I'm not even a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I could imagine myself never watching those movies again. They're fine. But when you get to the end of this 11-hour viewing experience or the end of this surely 30-hour reading experience, it's impossible to not feel as if the characters went on a journey, the breadth of which you could never imagine. And I kind of disagree with you, Johnny. I think even in the book, there's a little bit of a disconnect. People keep saying, the Daikini Crossroads, you're going to go all the way there? That's not even possible. I don't even think that place exists. And then you just get to the next chapter, and it's entitled Daikini Crossroads. Yes. Uh, I don't know if anyone else like had books like this, but I really wish that this was one where... You, you, did you ever read a book that like at the 
start of it, there was a big map with all the places that it was going to be. Like, I could have really used that, like, just to visualize, like, what this kingdom is like. Uh, but I don't know. They, you know, like a, a Peter Pan, you'll sometimes get, like, oh, here's the Pirate Cove, and here's the Lost Boys hideout and such. And this, I just, like, uh, you know, gosh, we, we're switching climates constantly in the movie. It's like mm-hmm. desert, forest, snowy covered mountain, uh, ocean it's very uh you know all over the place but they're not- truly like truman showed in this place that they live because they all talk about we don't even know what's out there but they mm-hmm. you hit the wall in like you know an hour of sailing like the thing is the description of them walking to the daikini crossroads or wherever it literally doesn't say they stopped and slept so it feels yeah. like every leg of the journey is less than a day and that baby is drinking from the same milk bladder for like, yeah, it's, it's yes. how, how much milk did they bring for this baby? But. <laughs> I would like to make a counter argument. Okay, please. I think this book feels like a bedtime story. It's not like a high fantasy novel. It's a story you tell your kids at night. And therefore, stuff like, and then they walked for a very long time, and it was hard, and they were tired, but they pushed on, is all you need. And, like, for that for that extent, to me, like, I don't need the scale and scope of the world. Like, for me, like, each set piece, like, it's like, okay, tonight we're going to talk about when Willow and his friends had to do this, and then... tomorrow night they go to Tira's lean and they're like, ooh, (laughs) you know, like I liked that aspect of it. And I think we're going to get to the end and I'll be like, not only do I like this book and will recommend it, I'm going to read it to my fucking kids someday. Wow. (laughs) I think it is perfect for that. Hannah, to build on that, I, I, I should clarify my statement because I think most of what I have been riffing on is a reaction to the film itself and acknowledging that the book uh, can't fix everything about that film. But I would like to agree and say, I did love this book. I think this is a <laughs> okay, great okay. novelization. I think from chapter one... I just want to defend yeah, it. No, 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 no. I, I'm happy to jump on that bandwagon. We didn't do first thoughts, and I just want to like jump in right from the top and be like, it's a good book. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's very good. I think from right from chapter one, it adds so much texture to this film that... On paper, I think there's a lot of great stuff in the movie Willow uh, that just some of it not fully realized. Uh, Not for lack of trying. I think that there's some great stuff in there. But uh, right away from this uh, very dark opening with the death dogs and the description of that, I was just right in. I thought, oh, this, you know, I watched the movie a couple weeks ago and and didn't enjoy it as much as I had hoped to. But all of a sudden I was all in on this book. And uh, I think that uh, Waylon Drew's uh, writing is... uh, maybe better than this film deserved even, or, or he certainly improved upon it, which I was surprised by because uh, as Andrew uh, discussed in his little prologue, uh, I did know that this was uh, expanded into a trilogy of books. And I had always heard that the books, the original books that continued the story were not very good. So I was expecting something more along those lines. And this, I would say it gives the, feeling of a uh, book that a movie adapted from as opposed to the other way around. This feels like Mm -hmm. good source material that a movie wasn't quite able to capture everything of. I'm relieved. I'm glad. I just want to grind us completely to a halt. Because I I do, I have a lot of stuff to say about 
you know my opinion about the book and whatnot but i do just want to read the the beginning of the book the death dogs part yeah um okay this is it's gonna be like a page but it's a good page i promise Okay, so this is literally the beginning of the book. The chapter is just called Nakmar. We don't know what the hell Nakmar is yet. Uh, Not for several hundred pages. All right, it goes, How beautiful were the death dogs. How powerful their shoulders and how elegant the curves of their hairless tails. How gracefully they move besides their handlers through the drifting mists and smoke of Nakmar. From the high balcony of the conjuring room, each man and dog looked to the queen like a single creature, her creature, the man in his leather armor, black as the beast's skin, the dog tensed for command, its shoulder touching the man's thigh. Bevmorda smiled down upon them. She drew her cloak tight against the chill of the morning. She waited. They were practicing the kill. A few prisoners had been brought up from the dungeons, and they huddled together behind a buttress where the dogs could not see them. Across the courtyard, a sally port swung open and a footbridge dropped over the moat. Through that gate, the prisoners could see the slate hills of Nakmar Valley. They could imagine the freedom beyond. The captain of the guard looked up and saluted. Bavmorda nodded. Each prisoner was told to run. One by one, with whatever energy and hope remained, they dashed for that gate, for those hills. One by one, the death dogs slipped their leashes, streaked through the courtyard, and leaped at the prisoners' throats. No one reached the gate. So... I just want to say, I also love the book. I think it's incredibly written. I think the prose are some of the best prose that we've ever seen in a novelization. My issue with the sort of condensing of um, this epic is that I feel like Waylon Drew is treating me, the reader, with such intelligence, and he's assuming that I have you know, that I'm smart. And literally there's like four semicolons in what I just read. <laughs> um, that that it bumps me that it still has that kind of fairy tale speeding up of events. Because yeah. I think that he, it really feels as epic as a Lord of the Rings type book. I agree. The only time that I felt let down by the condensation of events is the part sort of close to the end when they're on their way to Tira's lean and the nice witch is like, we're about to go through Bathmorda's maze. It's really difficult. It's yes. going to be hard. And then they just like are through it. Um, that kind of bummed me out because I was excited for a maze. Mm-hmm. And I hear you. I hear this. I am not a Tolkien guy person. Like, I, I don't need that much. It's too much for me. I don't really dig it. He is doing such lofty intellectual stuff that is great and important or what's not. Uh, but for my money, I'd rather read a book that's this length and this level of complication. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm stupid. I don't know. But I think it would have worked if they didn't play up the, oh my God, it's so far. Can we even do that part? I think if they were just like... They're little. You know, Bavmora lives around the corner, but that's a bad neighborhood, Willow. <laughs> don't go there. <laughs> I mean, I, there was a little bit of like, does, is Tara's lean even a place anymore? And they get there and it's 100% a place. It's very easy to get to. <laughs> that thing kind of me out. You know, I, I totally, I agree with all of your knocks. Um, I just was so entranced by like the characters and like 
the little world I was in that I, I I was so willing to forgive all of the stuff that sort of is a little weaker in the novel. Yeah, considering that this is uh, pretty faithful to the film, like beat for beat. Uh, in fact, it even like I, I'd say leaves a little uh, stuff out. Like I think Bav- Bavmora Bav- is that. Bavmorda. Bavmorda. Uh, uh, gets a little short shrifted in this and that we're not cutting back to her quite as much. But I, I still think that uh, the characters get uh, a lot more, are, are a lot better drawn than they are in the film even. So, at least some of the side characters. I really liked the uh, ongoing trope throughout where characters will tell a story and then we get the little like, oh, uh, so-and-so, uh, you know, Kevin Pollock Brownie's tale and stuff and such like that. Um, it was, uh, it did have this feeling of multiple points of view and that these were not just characters who were in Willow's movie. While we're sort of on the Tolkien comparison of it all, I do want to say something that I actually prefer in Willow over the works of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings is I sort of prefer Willow's journey because it is a little more of the the put-upon hero who has to kind of get himself to the ending than I feel like someone like Frodo Baggins is. You know, Frodo, a lot of things happen to yeah. him. But Willow, you know... No one in his village believes him, aside from his family. You know, he has to sort of make these allegiances along the way. He has to try and fail in this way with the sorcery. But And even though he does have a little bit of, like, you always had the strength, you always had the power, I did kind of enjoy the arc of watching him have to, you know, go through it all to eventually kind of win the day. Yeah, I was surprised uh, in my memory at a certain point, once Mad Mardigan uh, fully turns good after all of his, you know, shyster shenanigans, uh, he I I remembered him sort of taking the reins of the hero role a bit more than he does. Uh, He certainly is good in a battle and he saves Willow a couple times, but it's still Willow's journey through the end, which I in my memory, uh, I I remember when I went to see the film as a child, I thought Mad Mardigan was Willow. Like, I looked at the poster, I looked at the title and the, you know, newspaper it's like, oh, Willow, and whose head is biggest on the poster? Well, there's Val Kilmer. So he must be Willow, right? And uh, it was a delightful surprise to uh, learn that, oh no, this is a, a a very pro little person movie, and uh, pretty, I'd say also pretty revolutionary for 1987. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And to think that I mean, War Warwick Davis is only 17 when this <laughs> yeah. comes out. He's and so yeah, lovely. I mean, but it is kind of great to watch the scenes in their village and see every you know little person actor that's ever been in a movie. Yeah shows up and you're like oh there's kenny baker in the background <laughs> there's a what's his name from uhf oh, oh yeah uh billy barty yeah billy barty uh and it's just it is great to see these actors given a lot more depth than playing an ewok or r2d2 absolutely or even leprechaun which is sort of a just a fun villain role it's it's fun to see them really take over the movie for the first 20, 30 minutes. Yeah, I don't think this film gets nearly enough credit for really putting them front and center, like, uh, throughout. And and yes, eventually Willow goes off on his own. But hey, he's still the titular character, and uh, uh, good for him. Yeah, I'm... uh, I've also heard that this is uh, coming back in some form, either a sequel movie or a series, and uh, I'm... I'm, It's a Disney Plus thing, uh, because I watched it today on Disney Plus... And saw that there is some sort of Willow 
sort of probably like Dark Crystal, mm-hmm. where they're doing another, you know, stab in that universe. I mean, Warwick Davis is not very old. He could certainly come back and oh, absolutely, do it again. Yeah, I, I'm I'm mildly curious for that. I, I suppose. I have a question for you all uh, because I didn't get to finish the book. Do you feel the how? I mean, obviously the the romance of the movie between Mad Mardigan and I'm forgetting Sorsha. Sorsha. Uh, it's sort of a weird romance. Yeah. I feel like in the film, is it any? Does it feel any more natural in the book, especially her turn towards? affection for him with the interiority that the book would give i would say no except she does get an additional moment where she like sees her dad and the goodness in her is awoken and then the fact that she like she has a likes a nice yes. boy is just like an additional thing can, just f- as context for this can, can you guys remind me does the is the whole backstory of her of bab bab morta stealing away the the boyfriend of Tyr Azaline is that in the movie or is that a book specific thing? It was filmed and uh, the deleted scenes are on the uh, the Blu-ray. But yes, the whole thing with the father trapped in ice and all of that that, right. that is uh, in that was in the film, but it was left out. Uh, along I just want to explain sequences. this because I assume that someone who's seen Willow would not know this. But in the book and apparently in the deleted scenes, as Johnny says, uh, there is backstory given about how. Tira's lean. No, what is it? Um, the what's her name? The, f- um, oh, Nathmora. No. Um, f- oh, ah, Finn Rizel. Finn Rizel. She is uh, a magic creature, whatever kind of magic creature she is, and she basically falls in love with a mortal man. Uh, and in falling in love with a a, a human man, a Daikini, she. Uh, sort of stops practicing her magic, becomes less good at magic, and then uh, when Bavmorda comes into the picture and decides that she wants to seduce this human man, and I believe the the royalty stems from him, right? Like Bavmorda, yeah, he's a prince. Bavmorda becomes essentially royalty by seducing him away from um, Rizel, uh, and then. Uh, it freezes everyone and I, I think quartz in the kingdom. So Tirazlin is still this beautiful kingdom. It just has all these people like frozen in rock in the middle of it. And so what we're referring to now is that towards the end of the book, Sorsha gets to Tirazlin and sees her father, who she's able to recognize just because he looks like her. Only like two people have red hair mm. in the whole. Totally, world of no, no. I'm not questioning thing, it, so. even though I said it in an extremely speculative. They make a like, big point about term. how he was a ginger and she is a ginger. I just want to clarify for everybody. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's not no. So weird that she's like, ah, him. No, no. I don't think so either. I, I would question. Does it make sense? So that her finding the king are, is specific to the book but i think the book makes sorsha seem way more evil and i wonder if her changing just because she sees her dad to being a protagonist makes sense in the book because i felt like it didn't really and my, my other question just a fact question is can someone remind me how or why she changes her mind in the movie because that's totally fallen out of my brain i think I that oh hannah Oh, Hannah yeah, Blegman has her hand up. Okay, please. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. One, I think in the movie she changes her mind because she falls in love, which, eh, not great. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I think like also in the book, there's this whole thing where when Mad Mardigan is like, I love you, I love you more than anything in the world because he's like having a magic issue. <laughs> it's the magic first, issue. it's the first time she has ever been loved. Yeah. And that starts the process. And then when she encounters her father, who is visually a loving person, like clearly a good guy in mm-hmm. a world where bad guys look evil, um, that like, cracks her evilness and she's like okay i'm gonna be good i believe in love it's worth it to be a a person of love that makes sense how i think it happens in the book and just as much as mad mardigan and sorsha fall for each other in the movie i do think a very big element is the chemistry that val kilmer and joanne wally had together where they, you know, you just look at the two on screen and say, like, oh, you are both very attractive people. You should be doing it. And then they do. And they uh, yeah. Did. Oh, oh, again and again, <laughs> undoubtedly. Um, so I. Two children to prove it. Yeah. I do think that in the movie, uh, you believe her turn from evil to good mostly because uh, these two people are hot and you want to see them end up together. I mean, her other option is probably she's like, you know, promised to General Kale after winning the battle or something. Yeah. She. Uh, that that moment when uh, Mad Mardigan is under the the spell and you know proclaims his love for her uh, is a a thing that wakes her up a bit. But yeah, it, it's pretty thin uh, in both the book and the film. And probably exposure to the baby too, yeah. right? Like the baby has this magical ability to like make things love it. Animals come to the baby. People are soft to the baby. That, like, she spends an evening with the baby and is probably like, ooh, what if niceness was in the world? Which I think is a little expanded in the book. Like, I didn't, I mean, I did just watch the movie fairly recently, but I didn't remember quite as many exchanges between Willow and her about, like, she's a baby. She wants to be held. She wants to be loved. And and her sort of, oh, what is love? Oh, yes. Oh, I'm I'm holding a baby and I'm feeling, you know, all squishy and warm inside, you know, uh, I don't recall so much of that playing out in the film as it does in the book, I think, quite effectively. The reason that I take issue with her turn in the book, the reason that I think she seems more evil in the book is because the beginning of the book makes it so explicit that she exists to kill an infant. Mm -hmm. That before the events of the film even play out, she is basically on baby watch in Tiraz Lean, being like, Oh, somebody had a in baby. Nakmar. Let me go. Oh, in Nakmar, I'm and I and I and I do have the egg on my face, and I and I will be looking at ways to <laughs> sorry, get it off. Um, no, no, you're you're right. But uh, this is this is weirdly the Jane Austen book club yeah. all over again with the names. <laughs> um, but I'm like, uh, I got it. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Uh, no, she basically inspects every single child to potentially kill that child for. Well, her I think mother, it's only female children. Oh, sure. She's only seeing. Yeah. But I, I just mean that she, she's so aggressively hunting a baby in the movie, and it's or in the movie and book, and it's so late in the story that she makes her turn. Uh, when I was just reading it, I didn't, I didn't buy it that we liked her now. I bought it more than I did in the movie, and maybe that's just a factor of books. That's so interesting because um, I agree with Johnny that the reason it works in the movie is because there's like a star power element to it. I mean, anybody would want to kiss Val Kilmer, right? And and I like a like some dumb guy. I'm just like, oh, it's like a really pretty lady, and she's smiling now. So like, that's good. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's the aspect of the story in all versions that doesn't super work for me. 
um, is like the two of them hooking up because also like he fucking hates her. Like yes. the reason he comes to like her is also kind of a mystery. But you know, m- stories need love in them, so sure. It definitely feels like uh, George Lucas like took the wrong feedback from Han and Leia, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was like, okay, not only. Is it fun when people have banter, but they actually like each other? Hatred is love. Uh, also, I do think that Mad Mardigan does love one person, and it's himself, uh, more than anyone else. So, yes, I don't know if I totally buy this uh, ending that is going to see them, like, get married or something. I just watched uh, Big Trouble in Little China again for the umpteenth time last night. And the ending that that movie has, where Kurt Russell just leaves, like, really has nothing, wants nothing to do with Kim Cattrall. Like, he got his kiss, whatever. Uh, I feel like that is exactly the same vibe that I get from Mad Martin, except that's not what you end up with uh, in either version. I agree with you in the book. There's something about Val Kilmer's performance where, like, he's in love with everybody he meets yeah. eventually. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. he loves Willow, he loves Sorsha, he loves the baby, he loves the Eric. brownies, he loves Eric. He's just like a guy who feels a lot of love but has had a hard life, and it's a little bit you know, he's hiding it. He's behind walls. He says And like, that's all Val Kilmer. You're, you're totally right, Hannah. He says the word peck like he's saying my love. <laughs> so, it really, like, the two of them becoming, like, the part where he's like, okay, I'll take you to Tirasleen and then I'm leaving. And then he doesn't because he likes them. Like, all of that is, is very compelling in the movie more so than in the book. And that's the one element for me where the movie sort of succeeds more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It definitely succeeds on having a fellowship that's more of a buddy comedy than an epic of many, many people. Like, yes, the brownies are there. Yes, Sersha, Sorsha is there. But it's really like their relationship is so central to it. And it's interesting that you said earlier, Johnny, that he has all these sort of like turns and seems to be going you know, changing allegiances. I don't really feel that that much when I watch the movie. Hmm. Maybe it's because I like Val Kilmer in the role, but like, I don't really feel like he's really betraying or like really letting the baby go. It just seems like he keeps ending up in the wrong situation. Yeah. That he has to that, get that out of. That will bring them back together. Mm-hmm. Like the only time where it really feels like he's not coming back to it naturally is when he's having like a sexy hookup at, the prancing prony, yeah. whatever it is, it <laughs> uh, and which I think is a great kind of setup to like how they get out of there is he's being you know in this sort of adulterous situation. The husband shows up, he's dressed up in drag. Uh, the baddies show up, and their way out is basically the 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 cuckolded husband realizing that he is a man sends him into a blind fury and he like kills everybody basically <laughs> speaking I, of yeah. m- motivation uh which we which we were uh you know uh, in regard to mad mardigan you know actually having love for everyone as hannah says and then and we touched on earlier i think it was johnny maybe that said that uh you know the the willow character he has this arc that's very interesting where he's motivated to go uh, on this journey out of like love for this child that he found in the river. Uh, but it's like a it's a two part motivation where he gets the child to the Daikini crossroads and 
then has a realization about himself at mm-hmm. the crossroads that sort of motivates him through the rest of the... I'm talking about the book now. Yeah, so, no, no, you're right. At the very beginning of the story, and I think crucial to uh, Willow's motivation, is when they find the child in the river, Willow has that scene or that, that passage in the book where he... Uh, attempts to use magic on the child's little boat, which I think is such a good uh, tidbit that um, Waylon Drew has added. So essentially, for the listener, uh, uh, Willow goes back to the boat that um, Alora was in, and he is examining it. And he's like, oh, I think this is maybe held together by magic or something because it's not bound by any cloth like everything that holds it together isn't isn't like tied and he he really wants to be a sorcerer and he's going i wonder if i could take this boat apart with magic and there's this uncertainty uh inserted into the plot where he tries to do a quickening spell on it which i guess is quickening in the sense of like entropy like he's trying to like accelerate it towards falling apart and it floats off and he's like, oh, I didn't do it. And then he like sees it broken and going underwater. And he, and there's this uncertainty of did Willow just cast a spell that worked or did it hit a rock or something? We don't really know. And he doesn't know. He doesn't know if he's capable of magic or uh, he doesn't he's not yet ready to believe in himself, I, I guess, is my point. And so he takes the child initially to the Daikini Crossroads because he has love for the kid and, and all this stuff. But when he gets there, there's this passage, and, and I'm not going to read it verbatim, but a passage where he basically is ready to leave the kid with Mad Mardigan. And then as he's walking away, he thinks, you know what? But like being a sorcerer, the high old one was telling me that it's all about just believing in myself and going by my instinct. And yes. my instinct says, do not leave that child with that man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> turns around and runs back and i think it's really interesting it starts with all this to say it just starts with this very simple motivation get the kid to safety and then his investment in his own self-worth carries him through the rest of the movie he just has this feeling that he must do this and he follows it to the end i know exactly the passage you mean and that is i think a very uh good part of the book that uh I think we are getting the inner monologues of a character that, you know, the original screenplay for the movie doesn't, you know, allow to uh, allow us to delve into. I think Warwick Davis's uh, performance is excellent, but uh, he's not always written well. And uh, I think he is, we do understand his emotions and his motivations much better in the book. And yes, uh, the the best that we get at the beginning when he's still in the village and he's done the little test with the, uh, you know, the wizard uh, where it's, he basically says you lack confidence and and it's, it's all about confidence. And it's like, hint, hint, everyone, it's all about confidence. But that, after that, you're on your own. You really have to just sort of keep that in mind. Whereas I think the book does a good job of making that an ongoing theme. Uh, and uh, yeah, that, that I think is a great uh, moment in the book that, uh, that that you highlighted. I also think it's so important that the trick, the, the magic that Willow does at the end to save the baby is not magic. Yeah. It's a trick that he does yes. with a cloak. Like, it's not magic. He just is confident enough to pull it off. Mm-hmm. He, and he knows he can do that one, and he does it. 
They say I you need that. a better. I love that so much. Yeah, we need to get a better pig next time, and that better pig is a baby. It's <laughs> so moving to me, actually, that like he doesn't have some transformation into a big magic sorcerer who can do unbelievable magic. He always struggles with magic. Mm-hmm. He will never be a perfect, amazing sorcerer. Uh, but it doesn't matter. He's a hero anyway, and he uses what he can do to save the day. Yeah. I love it. Hannah, when I when I monologued about uh, his uh, motivation, you said interesting read like you completely disagreed. Well, uh, I wouldn't say I, 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 com- I see where you're coming from. That's not how I read it. <laughs> exactly. That's all. What, like, you, what, how did what you I thought it? you were going to is that early in the thing when he finds the baby, he says, push it back into the river. That's <laughs> none of our <laughs> <Yeah>. business. <laughs> Right. And so up until the Daikini Crossroads, his whole thing is like, get this baby away from me. I want to get rid of it. I want to go home to my family. I don't want any part of any of this. Rejection of the call, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, I've, yeah, I've the only indeed. reason he loves the baby so much is he sees how his wife, Kaya, responds with it. And I, I also have to say, and yeah, and his kids. Uh, I love his Willow's family. I love Kaya. I love the kids. And uh, I, I, they're like one of my favorite aspects of the movie. And, uh, you know, the, the book doesn't give you much more. But uh, I, it does sometimes make me wish when I'm watching that movie, because I'm really with it at first. And uh, I wish that we spent more time in that world with those people. Yeah, I mean, the the book has the element of, like, I mean, it, it, it's in the movie, too, that Kaya gives him her hair. Yeah. And he mm-hmm. has it with him the whole time. And I think in the movie, they, like, don't come back to it, really. But in the book, he's constantly, like, reaching to touch her hair, going to it for a, a token of strength, of being like, well, you know, my family needs me to come home. Like, my family loves me. My family believes in me. And that's so... Um, really pure hearted and nice yeah and that his family wants him to take care of the baby and so when he has that crisis of like my instincts tell me this guy cannot be trusted with the baby a he's like i gotta go back and take care of this baby because it's the right thing to do and i have to believe myself on this one and if i went home and my wife and kids were like who'd you leave the baby with and you were like some scraggly piece (laughs) of shit on the side of the street they probably wouldn't be happy you know, like all of that, that's sort of where, and then after that point, he just cares about the baby. He wants to make sure the baby is safe because the baby is constantly in absolute peril. It's being tossed around. It's being carried by eagles. It's like falling into ravines, you know, and he's like, I got to, it's a defenseless baby. We got to take care of it. And I care about it on its own merits now. The the reason that I, I disagree with your refusal of the call part is just, there's some line and, and I don't have it on hand, but there's some line where it's like, Push it back into the river, Willow said, but even as he said that, he was taking the baby out or something. There's like some line that's literally like he said one thing, but he was doing the opposite thing. That's the power of the baby, right? Yeah, absolutely. The baby be magic. It's a baby ring. Um, I've changed my mind. I do want to actually just read the passage where he changes his mind. It's so good. Um, In the spirit of changing one's mind, I've decided to read the passage. Um, So he's just uh, musing about what if he actually was a sorcerer, because it's what he wants more than anything. Uh, So his inner monologue goes, real sorcery. And if he had that power, what would he use it for? Why, for good, of course. But what was good? What a hard question. On one hand, it would be good to charm his fields so that they would produce splendid crops every year effortlessly. But on the other hand, that would be merely selfish. On one hand, it would be good to, cha- to change Burglecut so that he could not bully people anymore and steal the profits of their hard work. 
but on the other hand, to do so might be to meddle in affairs of the soul, which were better left to other powers. What dilemmas? But surely, if one were a sorcerer with real power, it would not be wrong to destroy the death dogs. It would not be wrong to destroy the evil power of Nakmar, which spread like a pestilence from the north over the whole land. Surely that could not be wrong. I think something really interesting is happening in this passage, which is Waylon Drew is writing one thing, but he is conveying something beneath it. So in thinking, oh, maybe I should do this, wait, but actually that could be selfish or, or what have you, uh, Willow is basically coming to the point where he realizes in order to be a good sorcerer, I have to have a command of what my internal moral compass is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's amazing that Wayland Drew sh- makes that connection between magic and like ethical living without saying it outright. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, all I could add to that is I I think that he, as I said before, really went above and beyond in uh, fleshing this out, it, like actually interpreting what the story is about uh, when it's not necessarily written in the dialogue always. Yeah. I mean, even the, like, the more magic Bav Morda does for evil, the more gross and foul and decrepit and, you know, hag-like she becomes is like just another version of that subtly mm-hmm. presented. Very good. A, a nice thing to believe in. If you live well, you are lovely. And if you live poorly, you're not. Somewhere there's some sorcerer who's super nice and like super chiseled and hot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think it's also, I do want to say, when Finn Raziel is turned back into a human woman, and they're like, what do you look like? And she's like, I'm young and I'm beautiful. And she is... <laughs> She is old and nice look. She's a nice looking older woman. You know, yes. she doesn't look like a hag. She's just like an older woman. Um, that too is like good. They're like, but yeah, good, great. You're alive. Like we like the look of you. Uh, that she is not ever like that isn't another level of her curse that she is old. She is allowed to be heroic and old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like and is the implication there that she's just been a possum for decades yeah i, mean, I have questions about the timeline uh, for sure yeah i don't because like 20 you know so i'm wondering if when you're turned into an animal you age as that animal and so she has you know her time has gone you know it's only been yeah 20 years or whatever it might have been but uh in possum years she's an old woman and uh that's a great explanation yeah. wow that's awful willow <laughs> show wait sorry andrew what was that I was saying they should hire Johnny on this new Willow show. Oh, definitely. <laughs> they, they really should have. But s- s- so the idea being that, like, if I turned into a dog and then I, I was a dog for a year that, and then I went back to human, I would have aged seven years. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah, I buy that. <laughs> That's terrifying. Um, something I meant to say in like minute one of this is uh, I had seen Willow before. Uh, just a, a podcast I like watched or was watching it earlier this year, so I checked it out. And having seen it twice in one year, I can never remember what happens in the movie. I feel like it's like imprinted now on my brain because I read the book. But even watching the movie two weeks ago or whenever we were originally going to record, I felt like I'd forgotten so much. And I was reading stuff in the book, like the sledding and being like, 
Oh, that's an interesting thing they added in the book. Mm-hmm. I totally forgot there's a whole sledding sequence in the movie. I don't know what it is about this film, but I cannot keep it in my head. And do you guys agree that there's just like the the attempt here to convey all of the mythology in the movie? It's like beyond a disaster. Well, I do think that the movie is a series of set pieces and I too can never remember how we get from point A to point B. Uh, The sledding is a great example. I remember distinctly as a kid watching them sled down that mountain and Mm -hmm. even now, having just read it, having just watched the movie recently, I'm like, wait, how how are they suddenly on a snowy mountain again? Like, I just, I remember (laughs) that they do it, but... Uh, and then maybe part of the problem is in the movie, um, there are sequences that are cut. There's this whole sequence when he's in the boat and the fish boy comes up to him and stuff. That was also filmed and that was a deleted scene. Fish boy scene. part is so good. Yeah, it's good. It's great. And the uh, and the deleted scene looks good. And Ron Howard said it just uh, it didn't work. And uh, also uh, he cut it out of respect to Warwick Davis, who almost drowned while they made that part. Yeah, I, I guess. Uh, uh, he's, oh, so out of respect for you, Warwick, I decided to have it all be for nothing. Yeah, well, I think uh, Warwick on the Blu-ray said something like, "I this is not my best performance in the movie because I was terrified I'm not a good swimmer. You know, just by, mm-hmm. by his physicality, he is not able to swim well, and it was miserable for him to do, and uh, therefore he thought he, he didn't quite uh, nail the characterization there. But it's a, it's a fun it idea. I feel like it should be more difficult to cross that river yeah. in the movie. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I do think the movie... Starts strong, then suddenly slows way the fuck down and becomes unbelievably boring. And by the time you get to the big climactic battle, you're like, I forgot who we, yeah. I am. Like, I forgot everything and I don't care. Um, and there was like a fucking dragon and I was just like on my phone, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. the movie like loses <laughs> the its The dragon confused pacing. me. How, how did the dragon happen? Uh, I was wondering, do all trolls, if they get wet, or or first they have to get zapped, and then they get wet, and then they'll always turn into something? It, it, I mean, yeah, there, there's no uh, clear explanation. For now, in the in the book, in the book, there's a a beast that like laid laid the land low, or killed a bunch of people, or something, and then Bavmorda had it essentially stand in the moat so that. Only its fins were above the water, and it was breathing through its fins, or its gills, or whatever. And then in this moment of the final battle, the beast comes up out of the moat and is, like, fighting everyone. Like the bad that's the two-headed dragon. I think so. That's what I was going to ask. That is the two-headed dragon, right? Now, in the film, so. do we see it emerge from the moat? Because I found that passage arresting. Uh, yeah, there's some stuff in there where it's just like breathing fire on everybody. It's like crazy, and then he stabs it through its face, so it it's fight it swallows its own fire and dies. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That moment is in the movie, but like meant nothing to me. I have that it's bookmarked. It's an enough. amazing. It's an amazing passage. Yeah, there's some great combat stuff in here. Well, I think that the movie didn't spring for the Henson puppets, so there's a lot uh, that serves better in print and in our imagination than the actual physicality of what we see. Uh, I, I'm, I'm confused. I always thought that the dragon was the troll because I thought when the troll gets turned into a little little pink thing that like two little necks come out of it uh, that's correct oh, okay that that is what happened oh, okay yeah yeah um uh, i sometimes i don't know what's in my memory and what is just an invention but uh uh yeah i i, I do think that uh there's a lot 
that the book is able to do better than the visuals in the movie are able to do. One of them being uh, Willow is a lot more active in the book, partially because Warwick Davis doesn't need a stunt double on the page. Like there's a lot of things that no one would ask uh, poor little Warwick Davis to do on set that like, well, it's a book. You can do whatever we want, right? Though I feel like they asked him to do – They still asked him to do quite a bit. Yeah. You watch a lot of shots with a fire and explosions and horses and you're like, that is not a stunt no. double. That is underage Warwick Davis running around. Yeah, I, I don't know how that works when uh, the, the – you know – when when you are the the size of a person who your your stunt double yeah you know, or I mean I guess uh, little people are often used as stunt doubles for children and such but uh, I I don't know if uh, poor Warwick Davis was just uh, in you know craft you know tasked with being his own stunt double basically. It kind of sounds like it, given that the the fish boy part. yeah the, I mean, the water that, stuff in that um thing I was watching on YouTube before this the behind the scenes featurette. There's just shots of Warwick Davis in a boat with waves all around and him just being like, ah, ah, ah. Mm-hmm. and I did think, did I see that? I don't remember seeing that. Um, the So the part, uh, very the, a very brief passage, the part where um, Mad Mardigan kills the dragon. While you find it, I want to mm-hmm. say one thing about Mad Mardigan. It's really wild to hit me that his name is not Mardigan. And he is mad. Oh, Hannah, thank you so much. <laughs> yes. I think it is so bizarre. I thought the exact same thing. Mad Mardigan. Yeah, he's, Especially he's, when they meet him and he's like a weird little imp guy in a cage who's like, give me stuff, give me... I'm like, he's gone mad. He's lost his dignity as a man and he has to regain it. He's Mad Mardigan. And it's like, nope, that's just his fucking name. Yeah, the biggest <laughs> shock for me reading this whole book was seeing the spelling of his full name, Mad Mardigan, one word. Yeah, that that blew I, yeah. my mind. I, could, I don't. It seems like so easy and obvious, and it's just like not the case. Yeah, I thought that his name was Mad Mart, and that they'd met him before. Um, <laughs> so nice. anyway, well so anyway, here's the passage: the Nakmars retreated to the tower, but Mad Martigan leapt onto one of the creature's heads and, with a mighty two-handed thrust, drove his sword straight down through its skull. Then, as the gases gathered in the creature's throat for another gout of fire, and the head rose with the sword plunged into the hilt, pinning its jaws shut, Mad Mardigan leaped off, seized one of the gargoyle's heads projecting from the tower, swung to a ledge lower down, and dropped to the ground. Above him, the dragon's fire turned inward, and its head blew away in a fountain of flame and foul liquid. Now, if this is in the movie, as you are telling me, it is not a special effect I would describe as blew away in a fountain of flame and foul liquid. A beautiful image that lives in my head because of this novel, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure I've never seen. No, I don't think that the movie does it justice, but I do remember seeing him stab the dragon through the head, and then the dragon dies. Yeah. 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 So you one know, of the heads, one of the heads most definitely did blow off. Okay. Well, there we go. Yeah. Did, but I, did, I would say, as as far as dragon puppets go, uh, this is not quite as good as like the movie Dragon Slayer from like seven years earlier. So you know, that's the which budget he that also Waylon Drew also novelized. Oh, did he? Oh, Whoa. oh, now, oh, I'm intrigued. Did I? Did wasn't that in my intro? Am I making that up? Uh, maybe I, I uh, you brought that up. I missed Dragon, Dragon Slayer in there. Yeah. Batteries not included. Yeah, I, I would also point out I didn't want to stop you in your little prologue, but uh, I have read the Batteries Not Included uh, book, and it's really good. It's uh, it's it's a 
Uh, I think I have it somewhere around here. That's one of those titles that like I've heard a million times. I have no idea what type of movie it is, who's in it. I don't know a single detail. <laughs> it's a it's a uh, Hume Cronin Jessica Tandy vehicle. Like th- th- oh. this is a big big budget mainstream movie starring two 80 year old actors. Uh, I loved <laughs> it as a kid. I was obsessed with it. I revisited the film a couple years ago. And was just astonished. The first, like, 40 minutes of the movie, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, why is this not a classic? This is amazing. This is even better than I remember. The performances are great. And then it really falls off a cliff. And it, it really, you know, get, gets out of control. But, Add it to the list, Overby. Let's read Oh, it. no, I'm all for it. I, I do remember the novelization being kind of better than the movie. But, yeah, it's about two old okay. people whose building in New York is going to get, or, yeah, I think New York is going to get demolished. And then little tiny spaceships from another planet uh, come to help help them uh elizabeth Pena is in it as well it's it's a it's a weird one just to flex my competence hannah it is on the list it's just not on the schedule no good (laughs) well yeah put it on the schedule okay (laughs) okay i I have a question while we're on this mad martigan sort of moment hair of course because i had not seen the movie i in the book thought he is certainly the missing prince Mm-hmm. And he will be revealed. Is that crazy that I thought that? Or is that... Not at all. Uh, no, that makes sense. based in story trope. So much so that like when they really hit the beats of the whole missing prince thing, I, I thought, oh, this must be a... This was deleted from the film. And this is like going to suddenly make so much more sense. And it still doesn't go there. Uh, yeah, it, it feels like it's missing. Like it, it's meant to be that and... And they don't. I mean, I especially because he puts on the king's armor at the end, right? And like emerges as a hero. Okay, I have a I have a theory about that. So okay, wait, but first off, before I get to it, if that theory were true, he'd have the hots for his daughter, right? Well, then they wouldn't kiss, and the thing that doesn't really work, like then that the plot would be like we're not in love with each other. You are my daughter, and we have been reunited, and that's nice. It wouldn't be about smooching. It'd be about, like, familial paternity love. I, I don't want this to come off in some perverted way, because I'm, I wouldn't like to see it in, like, a titillated fashion. But I do feel like there's not enough fiction that deals with, like, accidentally that stuff could and probably did happen in olden times, right? Like, yeah, there's yeah, no certainly. famous works about sons marrying their mother i know yeah well okay i guess i guess like i guess like uh oedipus is the one because it's an it's a misunderstanding right um okay so that's all sorts of weird true life stories of like twins or siblings separated at birth who find each other and think that their connection with each other is love right it is siblings um which is fascinating yeah it's terrifyingly more common than you would expect you're yeah. saying that instead of turning to cinema for my perversions, I should just look to real life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you want to get freaky, go to the world. And this was medieval times. Like, you know, there was a lot of incest going on there. I, I think it was sort of shrugged off. You know, they, they could have gone there if they wanted to. But, you know, it's a PG I mean, movie. I also was like, there's all this, the timeline is very confusing. So in reading the book, you don't really get a sense of how old Mad Mardigan is. Like, he could be in his 40s. Yeah. You know, Val Kilmer is right. young and stuff. But, like... You know, there's all this sort of like, ooh, I don't know, maybe that I found very titillating. And then, like, it doesn't go there. <laughs> he certainly <laughs> lived a life. Like, I mean, it, Mad yeah. Mardigan has gone on many an adventure before. Like, yeah, he, he's probably not, you know, 29-year-old. Yeah. He went to the Land Falcon of Willows with. version of Asia and picked up a cool sword. 
Um, the last thing I'll say about my weird perversions is um, <laughs> that there just should be time travel fiction, and I, you know, I've tried to write it before, but there should be time travel fiction about time traveling so that people become different people. Like, oh, like my sister now has a different father type of thing. And all the confusion yeah, that that, that would cause, not necessarily sexually, but just like if you came back and your best friend was like half a different person. Anyway. Or... What if your dad was frozen in ice for 20 years and now he's still your dad, but he's your exact same age? Totally. Yeah. That kind of stuff I also find very compelling. I love that. But I, I have to say, the, sorry, Andrew, I have to say the thing, just my theory on why the armor fits Mad Mart again. It's just very simple, which is I think that Waylon Drew is just trying to do like a, he is destined to be the king of this reformed kingdom. Mm-hmm. And and that sure. fits yeah, perfectly that with right. the romance with right. Sorsha. Yeah, the the sure. armor can't fit Willow, so it's got to fit someone. It, we we have to have and a it's hero. Hot, like again, this book has pictures in the middle. They're really nice. There's this one. Where is it? Very sexy one. Oh yeah. Falcomer's in the armor with his sword. He's looking great. You turn the page. Those are close up. He's in the armor. He's looking hot. <laughs> that is wet. a really hot photo, that one. Yeah. It's so hot. <laughs> I also, because I won this at a game show, it came with a Willow sticker Ooh. of that <laughs> shot, uh-huh. which is hot, baby. Get that on the fridge. D- does that, yeah, I might. Is anyone old enough to remember sticker books? You know, you would you would go and get your, yeah. a little pack of stickers and you'd put them in a book. I did have the Willow yeah. sticker book. It's probably oh, in some it's landfill now, but yeah, it, it might have been. Yeah, and this was my introduction to Val Kilmer. And uh, hey, it, it uh, I, I don't know who I was uh, more attracted to as a six year old Val Kilmer or Joanne Wally, but it certainly gave Very little hot. Johnny a lot to think about. <laughs> this shot that I'm calling like unbelievably steamy, by the way, in this is when he's like, oh, no, my friend has died. <laughs> Part of what makes this very sexy is that he feels grief and emotions for his. Friend. Yes, I was going to say, I think the thing that's hot about it is that it's like a, a goofy man who is just like being showing gravitas. Yes, which is why it's his Val Kilmer's best acting moment in the film because the real Val Kilmer has never shown grief and emotions for anyone. From what I've heard, from what I've heard. <laughs> all right, all right. So speaking of that deceased friend, Eric, um, Eric. who I, as you Eric. reminded me while we're recording this, this is a Ron Howard film, and that was the original Chuck Cunningham from Happy Days mm-hmm. as Eric. Um, but my important question is, you know, this is a Ron Howard film. Who should Clint Howard have played in this? <laughs> well, obviously, he should be one of the brownies. He should be uh, Rick yeah, Overton, okay. right? Uh, I don't know when Ron Howard got enough clout in Hollywood to start casting his brother, but I missed him in this film. I needed him. I was shocked that he was nowhere to be seen, and it's possible that he was an extra or something because I forget. I, was it? No, it wasn't the missing. I, I remember at a certain point. Uh, Ron Howard made a movie early 2000s. It might have been The Missing. Maybe not. Maybe the one after. Uh, maybe oh, it, it might have been A Beautiful Mind. I, I, at some point, uh, there it was a big story that this is the first Ron Howard movie that Clint is not in. So I always assumed that he was somewhere in Willow and I just didn't know. But I, no, I, I, he was nowhere to be seen as far as I could tell. I mean, I could also imagine casting him as one of Bad Morda's like, evil advisors. You oh, know, there's a such a good guy. line about the about her advisors towards the beginning of the book when that scene where she's um 
looking at the prophecy that she'll be killed or whatever. Also, yeah, this is Lord of the Rings. It's also just Macbeth. Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, when it's she's like, all stories are based in basic, <laughs> simple, recurring ideas. No, I I push back against that hard because. <laughs> Earlier, I I didn't chime in about the Lord of the Rings comparison, but I think that this is like Lord of the Rings in a very embarrassing way, which is like when I was a child and I would watch a movie like Back to the Future, and I'd be like, oh, I'm so inspired to write now because I love that movie so much. And then every idea I came up with would just be Back to the Future with the most minor tweaks, where I'd be like, you know, oh, uh... He needs to get back, but from the future. Now it's original. Now it's original. <laughs> and I, that's how I feel about Willow, is I feel like he, the, even though Ron Howard probably f- had the seed of an idea that he felt was original, it really does feel like Lord of the Rings, but sub a ring out for, I don't know, what else is valuable? A kid, you know? It just. I'm not contesting that. This I'm is really also not, not a Ron Howard like, idea. It just feels. It's oh, that's what I mean. Lucas. Sorry, George Lucas, not Ron Howard. Also, the idea of like we're searching for a baby. The baby will bring about your downfall. We put the baby in a river. It's Moses. Yeah. Like right. Yeah. There's it's, all it's sorts Narnia. of stuff. It's the Chronicles like, of Narnia. I feel like there. the page, the Mad Libs page is Lord of the Rings, and the spaces are being <laughs> filled with other IP. Okay. So okay. there's a healthy but, sprinkling from a lot of sources. So the Babmorda thing the at the stories big- are based in like things that we all come back to. Over- I- I'm not bothered by the fact that it's reminiscent of some of these things. Yeah, neither am I. Uh, that just speaks to like storytelling and humanity to me. <laughs> like that's what we do. I mean, it's also rather reminiscent of Star Wars. If if we want to like you know to yeah. have a snake eating its own tail, like you know Lucas has been beating <laughs> this drum for a while. It's 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 an ineffable thing that I I don't think I'm going to be able to to articulate, which is sometimes I see stories that obviously have similar themes or structures to other stories, and I'm like, that's okay. You can copy structure. This seems very original. There's something very, like, I just took the same building blocks and made a slightly different house with them that that yeah, bugs me about this one. I think have different thresholds for that, too. So, like, doesn't bother me, bothers you. I respect you. That's chill, man. I mean, that's the difference between you and me. I don't respect you. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> You're just like that skull general running around, causing trouble, making havoc. I'm too soft also. I just flipped to the skull general and was like, fuck, his design is so cool. <laughs> it's a skull. It's a, um, as a kid, I never realized it was a baboon skull. I just thought like, ooh, God, oh, that's a, a... I thought it was a fucked up human skull. Uh, that's what I like thought as a kid, other... but I think it's uh, it's oh. it's got that... Baboony shape, doesn't he? It, it, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm. It was also just great to see Pat Roach do something other than get punched by Indiana Jones yeah. in a movie. <laughs> I, did you like how I also had to walk it back? I'm like too soft. I was like, and I don't respect you in this argument. No, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't handle it's it. Okay, thank you. Um, it, we're friends. So, oh, and when you were bringing up the skull guy way earlier, and you were saying you're disappointed that he's not, he wasn't a real skull guy. Yeah. I got good news for you. He's a real skull guy. There's just like a little bit of meat on this skull sandwich. Too much meat, he's, says he's really I. Into skull. His so organs. He's a skull guy. His like skin has skull on both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's fine. <laughs> I just. But like, what if he was a Skeletor? 
Exactly. Oh, yeah. That's what I was hoping. As a kid, I was at this point. I was into Skeletor, and I was into uh, Jason and the Argonauts. I, I guess I was very into skeletons. They seemed to be a lot more part of the uh, the you know the fantasy culture when I was you know back in the eighties and stuff. And, and, and got to get back to skeletons, yeah. walking around on their own, playing their ribs like xylophones. Right. That's what Halloween was all about. Yards. You never see anyone dressed as a skeleton now. We we would have a Halloween party, and we would play pin the hat on the skeleton instead of pin the tail on the donkey. I love The that. hat? Yeah, yeah, you'd put a little top hat. It's such, such a narrow target. And it's also like, it could be like pin the arm <laughs> on the skeleton. They come apart. I love that he's wearing a party hat. Oh, yeah. Johnny, my point about it being narrow is that it's hard to get. I mean, yeah. I, I, well, I don't know. I guess if you, well, I, I don't know. I'm flashing back now like 36 years. <laughs> so I, I, I daren't like delve that deep into my memories. Um, going back to the book Willow, so oh, there's yeah. that wonderful <laughs> passage that I, I, I was uh, bringing up before that in at the beginning, um, Bavmorta is summoning this prophecy that basically, an interesting detail, they discovered the prophecy by accident. They did a, uh, a chant wrong one time, and Razel, Finn Razel, just appeared to them and was like, there's a baby that's going to kill you. Oops. <laughs> and ever since then, Bavorda keeps obsessively going, do the chant wrong again, you know? Um, and uh, she she watches the prophecy, and then she always banishes it with lightning, and there's a line about how even though she banishes the, the bowl of liquid that shows her this, uh, that doesn't change the future. And there's just a great line where... Uh, she asks advice from her, you know, her counsel, these these three guys. And uh, the, the narrator goes, uh, they, they told her what she wanted to hear. I mean, they they lived by being her buddies, not by being truthful. And, and then it says, <laughs> truth tellers were struck down often while still in the act of speaking truth. I think that scene is followed by a scene where the advisors are like walking down a hallway by themselves. They're like, should we? betray her uh not right now it's not safe mm-hmm. it's not safe we'd love to but it's simply not the time right right totally those guys okay thing about the baby mm-hmm. which is maybe the greatest MacGuffin i've ever seen in the movie where they're like the baby will defeat Bavmorda. nope she's just a thing that makes other people defeat mm-hmm. Bavmorda. like that prophecy be fake wrong prophecy right it, like I mean, that's yeah. not true Florida. She really defeats herself by like knocking over her bowl of Her blood. death is awful. Yeah. It is it is beautifully written by Wayland Drew, and I will read that passage. Her mean her way of dying via prose is beautiful. Her death where she knocks over a bowl and she's like, Shit fuck! That's really bad. Like, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't- Willow should like push her into a fire or Somebody should stab her or like something should happen that isn't like whoops. But to be fair, in Lord of the Rings, it's also a whoops. It is a whoops. Yeah. And a- Gollum just falls into the fire. But I don't care. Be better. It's a fun moment when Willow throws the acorn, this thing that we've been building towards the entire movie and book. And he's, he finally knows what this acorn is for. And he throws it and it works. It's turning her to stone. And then she just sort of brushes off that that cement hand. Say, oh, that all you got. And then, you know, when we get her end a half a page later, you think, I think I would have been more satisfied just watching her slowly turn to stone right yeah and then they push her over and she breaks into a bajillion pieces Uh, yeah much better 
Andrew, I don't disagree that the or I don't I don't disagree. I just wanted to no. Um I do disagree strongly um, about uh, the our friendship. Yeah, about the it being a whoopsie in Lord of the Rings because it is. But Lord of the Rings spends three books going. This volcano is nuts. Like it'll kill anything. You gotta get there. And so them wrestling basically at the mouth of the volcano. That's like an established threat so it makes sense that when one of them falls in with the ring that that's like end of story whereas in willow i was not putting huge importance on this bowl as like a possible chekhov's gun so even especially in the movie when it happens i'm like wait what the fuck what was in the bowl on that point and correct me if this is not true to the books but i feel like in the movies of lord of the rings they're wrestling on the side of the volcano. The ring like gets thrown over the crevasse, and Gollum like, goes yeah. for it because he has it's his only thing, right? And it's his like obsession that dooms him and the ring. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like that in Willow. It's not like she is damaged by yeah. her own hubris, you know? No, I I agree with what you're saying, Andrew. But I also we're talking about the movies of lord of the rings in the book gollum just gets really happy that he has the ring and he happy dances off the side of the oh i didn't get that far i'm never gonna read that book jesus christ (laughs) 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 movies can be better uh yeah so that's what i meant when i said it's a whoopsie fascinating well maybe there's a novelization of the movie of lord of the rings that we could all read the book is well, only better when it's the book made after the movie. We all know this. That, that's what we're learning on this podcast. <laughs> and that is why we're here. What did you all... F- we're contractually obligated to say that. How did you all feel about... And by you all, I'm excluding Andrew. How Johnny and Hannah, how did you feel about the final 80 pages of the book, which were just like nonstop action sequence? Yeah, I thought it was a lot to follow, but it worked. Yeah, and I think that uh, uh, Drew's, you know, uh, Wayland Drew uh, does an excellent job of writing the action in this uh, from this movie. I, I think that it is. Uh, I am able to follow it, as opposed to when we read Batman and Robin, and I had to stop reading and say, "Okay, I need to watch this movie to refresh myself with like what this is supposed to look like," because I'm not visualizing this. This, I think, does an excellent job of, like, doing these very epic battles, frankly, more epic on the page than they look in the film. Uh, because, yeah, he, he really uh, just takes it and runs with it and uh, is uh, great at describing these sorts of uh, Tolkien-esque battles, for lack of a better term. Yeah, but they're not... I mean, I think from what I got through in Lord of the Rings, and there's a reason I eventually stopped reading those books, is that like these are exciting and character driven. Mm-hmm. Like you are with a character who is having a sword fight and then you jump over to another character who you already know and care about who is having a different adventure in the battle. Um, and my remembrance of Tolkien is that there's a lot of like, and then the great warriors like did whatever um, because yes. that's his area of interest is much more yeah, like grand it's, it's scale. Less- it's um, not about that sort of exciting prose as much as telling you the history of right. what happened. And that's cool. That's its own thing. I do prefer the Willow version. That's like, here's this kid Willow. You love him. He's running from people. He's got a baby. There's a thing. He's ducking. He's diving. <laughs> uh, that stuff really works for for me. Yeah, like I said in the intro, I feel like Waylon Drew is really good at f- 
being like, okay, if I take a chapter to set up everything that's happening in this world, then I can shift into like kinetic action movie. And I, he seems to recognize that those two things complement each other better than they combine. And so yeah. when he goes full combat, he goes full fucking combat, which I loved. Um, of course, the, the dragon thing, probably my favorite part. There's also this passage where Eric is battling a bunch of people near like a cauldron. Eric! I'm obsessed with Eric. I love him. Eric, I love him. What do I we like him. better, uh, Eric or Grig? Mm. I mean, Grig. Oh, Grig is but good. Eric is really up there, too. But um, Grig, Grig takes it. Does John even Johnny, know Johnny, sorry is? about that. That's a Jane Austen <laughs> book club character. Oh, um, okay. His name is Grig. You you know what? There could have been a prominent character in this book named Grig, and I, I might have forgotten <laughs> it. Uh, it's like I, I wish there was. <laughs> of course, yes. Grig. Uh, um. All right. So this is the part where Eric is fighting near a cauldron that's got a lot of bad stuff in it. Uh, it says, "Roaring like a bull." Eric Thawbear Thawbar Thaw. Eric. <laughs> Mr. T (laughs) had meanwhile fought his way out of the mud, up the steps, and along the parapet to a cauldron of boiling oil. Directly below, a squad of Nakmar troops had linked their shields together and were now advancing, a formidable human machine, threatening the flank of Eric's brigade. Straining mightily, Eric reversed the apparatus of the cauldron and tipped it, spilling boiling oil down on this armored unit. Men died hideously beneath those shields, flayed alive, broiled in their breastplates. Their awful wail rose above the clamor and drew Kale's attention from across the courtyard. His gaze locked with Eric's. Their war cries clashed. It's perfect. I I then want to follow this up for what I think is also excellent writing and excellent world building that he just like beautifully like weaves into the action sequence. And it's literally like the next paragraph, right? Um, their war cries clashed, right? Kale gripped his sword. He hefted his mighty axe. Eric strode down to meet him. Next page. Their combat went unseen in the melee by everyone but Frangine and Ruol, the brownies. For decades afterwards, as their beards grew long and white, they would describe that fight to circles of wide-eyed brownies in the woods of Cherlandria, how Kale fought like a demon possessed, raining blows so thick and fast on Eric Thaubauer that his arms blurred and his axe struck fire off the stones of Nakmar. Like, and then he goes on to continue to describe the rest of the fight until Eric is tragically killed. And I was just like, this is such good. Like, that's the Tolkien touch of, like, there's history, there's before, there's after, there's all this stuff happening. And I was just like, wah, 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 this is good shit. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And I think Drew is so good at being, like, uh, the the key to a good action sequence on the page is just come up with like a very like the type of violence a child could understand like boiling oil go on guys and like <laughs> describe it beautifully and then just move on to the next thing that a child could understand if you stab a dragon through the face so that its mouth doesn't open it burns up inside it's just like so simple of a concept every time, but executed in this brilliantly worded way. I also want to say on that front, also, this, sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm just, I'm oh, too I was just hyped. Say like, just, <laughs> no, the writing is, I agree. It's really good. He also does a thing. We were talking about semicolons earlier. Yeah. He understands that to keep things moving, you can't always end a sentence. And he's like, 
here's the thing that happened, yes. here's the thing that happened, mm-hmm. here's the thing that happened. And they're not broken up by periods. They're mostly semicolons. And he just like is rolling through action and you're caught up in it. And that's like thoughtful writing and punctuation. I thought you were going to say that he understands that the clause on each side needs to be a full statement. I've done too much tutoring lately. <laughs> no, I don't give a shit about that. I'm not I, like when I write, whenever I'm just like a comma is an emotion. A comma is when you want to like make a feel like rhythmically. So like, no, 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 no. Mostly I feel like um, it's rhythmic. Like I do think punctuation is rhythmic. Yeah. And what he's doing is very smart and very effective. Yeah, 100%. This is just speaking of like the the words on the page. This is the first novelization we've done where there were like two or three words on every page I didn't know. <laughs> which which is an experience that I have reading books all the time, especially if I'm reading something that like I've heard is really good or intellectual or whatever. But it's the first time in a novelization that I've been like I just don't fucking know what that is. And they weren't character names. Say. No, they were usually like parts of castles or like, mm. they, but there were weird ones. What's that one? There was that French one that ended in like B-E-A-U-X that popped up like four or five times, like flambo or shambo or something. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And mm. I'm rolling through it. This is something that like, when I talked earlier about like, I will read this to my kids. I will read this to my kids when they're like seven or eight, you know, because I think it's so important to expose children to words they don't know. And like, that's what I like about like Disney movies from the seventies is that they're using big words and they're just like treating kids smartly. And uh, I think it's like such a good like learning experience to have like a story that's engaging with words you don't know that you have to learn so that you know it's happening. And like context is part of it. But like reading taught me every word I know more than like going to school or, you know, talking to my parents. Like any big word that I know is from a book at one point. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I like it. I respect it. I, was, I don't know where it's going with that. I was thinking about recently the the incredible popularity when we were in school of the Redwall books. Oh, yeah. Remember the Redwall books? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about how weird it was that they were popular with like 12-year-olds when they were written like with phonetic language. Like a character would come in a rat or whatever and it'd be written out as like ah, what's over there? <laughs> and like it'd be written out <laughs> like that. Yeah, the dialect of uh, rodents. How did children ever navigate that? <laughs> you read it out loud to yourself. Like that's, I mean whenever I run across phonetic shit, like I, uh, this is not totally the same. But if you ever read the book Layer Cake? Uh, is that eventually is the movie? a movie with Daniel Craig? I've seen the movie. I watched it yeah. on IMDb so that, TV, which was miserable. I'm so sorry. The movie's good. The <laughs> book is written in, like, phonetic Cockney nonsense. And the only way for me to understand it was to read it out loud. Mm-hmm. I misunderstood. I mean, huge spoilers for, spoilers for Layer Cake. But I, I, I misunderstood the ending of Layer Cake for years. Because when I was pretty young i probably came out the movie what like 10 15 years ago at least, uh, at yeah least. close to 20 and at this point. more than that because it's pre-james bond somebody somebody told me they were like the amazing thing about layer cake is it's about this like gangster it's about this criminal or whatever and you have this whole heist plot and then at the end out of nowhere he just gets killed and you don't know why and you don't know who did it and i was like that's kind of an amazing commentary on like how when you live like that you're never safe uh and then i watched the movie and i was like no it's very evident why he was killed extremely (laughs) yeah it's 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 british carly does way 
Um, you also like know by who, yes. like a character you've seen, you've seen totally, before, who and who has been, been wrong by the story. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I do think it's a really good surprising ending where here's a character who's been really lucky, who has somehow made it through, he's succeeded, and then uh, he fucking dies. I it. think you can do that with like a Tony Soprano. I think if you establish that somebody has enough enemies, you can just have a character we've never ever seen before kill him. And it's like, that's probably like the friend of a victim or something. Do you think we have a listener who's really mad that we just spoiled the end of Layer Cake? <laughs> oh, I, I hope not. Oh. That's, that's not our fault. That movie's like yeah. literally 20 years old. A, a listener who, who is currently on one of the like four minutes long commercial breaks on IMDb TV. <laughs> 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 I'm just getting my authorized in on the, on the breaks. <laughs> I mean, also, this episode's going to come out in, what, like, fucking February of 2022? The scheduling so- has gotten ridiculous. We we booked people for season three today. We got some Hannah friends. Goodness. And they will be they will be coming on in, like, five months for an episode that comes out five months later. <laughs> it's just, like, the, the concept here is that, like, okay, if somebody right now, if we released this tomorrow and was like, oh no, I was going to go through all of Daniel Craig's filmography <laughs> no time to die. Like, maybe they might be mad that we spoiled Player <laughs> Cake. But like literally probably 10 months from now, they've had their time. They need to get Totally. I mean, it. unless they're going through his filmography for, for Knives Out 2. <laughs> well, that's not my problem. <laughs> Um, I know there's more about this book that I, I want to talk about. Oh, how'd you guys feel <laughs> about the structure? So for the listener, um, in the book, there will just be these like side stories told and we'll get a full header that's like Von Carr's tale. And it'll be, well, Von Carr's tale specifically is like that he lived in the Nelwyn community, got super curious about the rest of the world, left, got incredibly lost. I mean... He gets lost for like three years and he plays it off like I was on this amazing journey. He met a lot of nice people and he had a lot of adventure. Yeah, but then weirdly, he's like so dedicated to getting, what does he want to see? Tira's lean? Uh, yeah, yeah I, I think he's, so. He's so dedicated to getting there and then he sees what, a death dog? He sees like some of Bav Morda's evil and he's like, okay, now I know I need to go back to my Nelwyn home and just stay there forever. But I, I, that happens three or four times throughout the story, which is that we just get like a header. Here's a complete side story that wasn't in the movie. Yeah. Queen of the fairies gets one. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there's, I mean, the whole backstory with Finn Raziel and the prince and Bab Horda is one of those. That Yeah. But that one feels crucial. I can't believe that's not in the movie. The movie feels like... Yeah, that is so important. Uh, yeah, I, and like, I think... Also, like, why is Finn Raziel the one who could defeat her? Like, the movie doesn't tell us that. Yeah, I think there was a lot of deleted stuff that even the, the Blu-ray doesn't have everything. Some of the deleted scenes are just Ron Howard describing them, saying, like, uh, it was dense. We had to, you know, this thing was two and a half hours long. We had to trim it Director's down. Director's cut yeah. when, Ron? I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would, wa- I would, to be fair, I would watch deleted scenes where it was just Ron talking mm-hmm. about the deleted scenes. I really love it when it's, like, storyboards, pictures, the director is like, we were really, uh, in this scene, this was supposed to be, like, that is a thing I like on DVD. Oh, the deleted scenes I found for The Sixth Sense were all uh, prefaced by M. Night going, it broke my heart to get rid of this one. Oh, M. Night. What a, <laughs> a director known for now, his heart. 
Yeah. In, in in the deleted scenes, Andrew, or behind the scenes footage, rather, was Ron wearing his hat at this point? Yes. Or is he... He, are you talking yeah. about his little his little golf hat? It's a baseball yeah. hat. No. Baseball oh, my hat. God. He is wearing the little golf hat. I'm telling you. Like a little cat? Yes. He has like a he has like a full goatee at in the a- age of Willow. If you just go on like YouTube Willow deleted scenes, it's something called like the amazing something something. It looks old is like the way you'll find it. And he Yeah, he is wearing like a little golf hat and he's got a goatee. It's so off putting Ron. Like it, it kind of it kind of makes him look a little a little skeezy, honestly. I mean, I do think that Ron Howard might have become a director because he realized, oh crap, I'm losing my hair. I can't be in front of the camera anymore. And I think spent most of the eighties uh hiding the fact that he was balding. Like, you know, he if he was appearing, he was always wearing the cap. But uh yeah, he pointedly stopped appearing on camera. And I think when he shot that like nineteen eighty eight return to Mayberry uh Andy Griffith reunion, uh he was wearing a if I remember correctly, it's been a 1988 while. would have been like exactly yeah when. right when this so right. yeah also like dear Ron Howard wearing a baseball cap 24 seven actually makes your hair fall out faster mm-hmm. it's bad for your hair follicles I I know <laughs> you dumb boy boys are always doing that my brother did that and it made him go bald faster do we think he calling out my brother this movie little bald. as like a you know a Ron Howard nod he's like you know I'm a redhead. That, that he what? Redhead in this movie. That there was a redhead in this movie. There's a re- connection between Ron Howard and Alora. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, altogether possible. And Sorsha. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, gingers love gingers. We all know that gingers are witches <laughs> and dangerous people. And so, yeah, I believe that he probably did it on purpose to forward the witch agenda. Of course, the baby in the movie is wearing a, a wig. You know, the baby doesn't have yeah. that adorable little curly tuft out front in, in and real life. And it's like six different babies yeah. I read. Like they kept having to replace the baby. Uh, which is amazing because this baby is really memorable. I mean, whatever triplets <laughs> are are primarily the face baby because, God, she mm-hmm. is so expressive. I don't know how many hours they had to shoot her to get her to, like, you know, sort of do that smile at Val Kilmer for that moment when they say, oh, does the baby really want to stay with Mad Mardigan? Like, ooh, oh, yes, I do, because I'm a baby and I, I recognize a handsome man. We are speaking before of how um, the baby is, like, foretold to kill Bav Morda, but then just, you know, it's just sort of around when it happens. And I, the other thing that really that really bumped me at the end of the book was they're like, oh, yeah. And then the baby, like, became the empress. And I was like, right away? Like, the, the, prophecy, the prophecy wasn't that that was going to happen later in life. She's just like a, a little baby empress. I don't know. I thought that was all very, like, not thought out. Uh, yeah, I agree. There's a YouTube video here that says Willow, colon, subliminal feminist masterpiece. I saw that one. Yeah. I feel like I might have to watch that. Mm. I'm uh, curious to what it has The one that I watched that I, do you see the one I mean, Hannah, that's just like old Is it the making of an adventure vintage special? So, two things that I I enjoyed about it. I watched that without sound. I just want to like look at... Uh, Two things I enjoyed about it is Oh my god! Oh, you already are at the Howard? I mean, he is wearing a baseball cap. That is a baseball You'll cap. You'll get to a golf hat. Kind of an ill-fitted trucker hat, but his hair is very red and he has a mustache, which is what shocked me. I promise you he'll have a little golf hat on soon. So, is that... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
exactly, exactly. <laughs> so two things about the video. We'll put that on the Instagram. Meanwhile, George Lucas um, is looking fine. The... Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Really hot, George. Really hot, George. So, so, a couple things about the video that are hilarious is that if you watch it with sound, it starts with one of the quintessential trailer voice guys from that era going in an age where we everything's a sequel or a remake. We're finally getting something really original. And I was like, oh, okay, this is thirty years ago. So. People who d- who are just desperate to have a take have always been saying that. So that's good to know. Uh, yeah. And then the other thing is that that little mini documentary is um, totally in the style of a documentary, except that it insists that the brownies are tiny actors. Ah, uh, yes, I remember that. Yeah. And, oh and they God. are they're seated on a couch in front of like a playhouse, and at one point they're like. George, uh, we appreciate you getting us a house that was our size, but you do know a Barbie house isn't fully equipped, right? Oh my god. Fucking comedians, am I right? This was like a bit in... Yeah. (laughs) This was like a a thing with EPKs at the time, where, I mean, does anyone remember the Back to the Future 2 EPK? I'm old. Uh, where, Where they talk about how the hoverboards are real, and like tricked a generation of children into thinking that you could buy a hoverboard but uh yeah it's uh yeah they love doing this it's like oh yeah well we found these little adorable actors who look like rick overton and kevin pollack yeah the interview segments with mel kilmer are breathtakingly beautiful yes he's a good looking guy he's extra blonde he has like a little scruff oh my god also the interview segments with warwick davis he looks like a 17-year-old. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very impressed that in the movie, I buy him 100% as, like, an adult He man. seems like an adult yeah, man, yeah. Because, like, yeah, suddenly seeing him with, like, short hair and a denim jacket, I'm like, that's a that's a baby boy. That's a child. He's I don't know. 17. I feel like his He's wife felt a few years older than him, though. Yeah. Well, that's he allowed. Felt, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying he felt like a 20-something I would say she felt more 30s, 40s. Yeah, considering I was six years old when I saw this, like, Willow could have been 12, and I would have thought he was an adult. Like, uh, I, I, uh, you know, to me, to this day, like, I'm watching Willow as a nearly 40-year-old man, but uh, to me, it's like, oh, yeah, Willow is older than me because I'm a little boy right now. Uh, Yeah, it's, uh, I I was shocked to learn that he was only 17. I mean, the guy has two kids already. He's so good. He's really good. Like, it's such a good performance. Like seven, 17 year olds rarely get performances that good. Oh, I see the golf hat. I see the golf yeah, hat. Yeah, the golf He's hat sticks golf around hat. in that 25 minute video. Let me tell you. Um, it's cute. It's cute. I like it. George is there wearing glasses, looking really cute. Really cute. I do like that Waylon Drew took the um, Warwick Davis performance and had it inform the way everyone talks in the book because there's so many italicized words that are basically um yeah there's a lot of weird ron looks there's so many italicized (laughs) words that make all the statements and questions i wish i could find an example there's where it's all like should we really do that and that's like how warwick davis is talking the whole movie i'm sure drew did that Mm -hmm. on purpose I do. Willow is such a rich character in the movie and in the book. Um, it's it's uh, mm, mm, Johnny period. on your um, on your topic of thinking that twelve year olds were adults. I <laughs> this is my thought process here. So when I went when I moved to a new school to the school that Andrew went to uh, when I was uh, in elementary school, I uh, 
was like eight years old and I got there and I, I saw, I remember seeing sixth graders and thinking that they were the most gorgeous adult people I'd ever seen. Oh, yeah. And then in, in class one day, they were warning us about pedophiles and they were like, be, be on the lookout because not all strangers are friendly. And there are people out there who are sexually attracted to like eight and nine year olds. And I was like racked with guilt. Because I was attracted to eight and nine year olds as an eight year old boy. And I like went home thinking I was a pedophile and like a danger oh. to my peers. Oh, wow. oh, Andrew. Marco, did you make note of this edit point that we might want to remove? <laughs> as soon as we got to the edifice talk, I've just been muting Andrew. Oh, we've lost so much good talk, but. It's worth it. It's the right call. <laughs> oh my god! What else about this book, guys? Anything? Yeah, I I, I really like it. I, it's a, it's a good book. It's it's not a good novelization. It's a good book. Well, let me ask the question. Oh yes, it must be asked, Johnny Pomato. Yeah. If you were to recommend this book to someone, or rather, if you were to consider the concept of recommendation, would you recommend it to? Someone who had seen the movie, would you recommend it to someone who had not seen the movie? What would you do with this power you have to recommend things? Uh, well, I, I won't step on uh, Hannah's toes, and she she watched uh, read it in uh, a different order than I did. Uh, but yes, I think that uh, it not only enhances the film, but I think that this uh, book works just fine on its own. I don't think it's a uh, any sort of masterpiece of the fantasy genre, but I think it is a solid entry. I think it's uh, you know maybe uh, you know it's it's slimmed down from like what a Tolkien novel could be, but I think it's right at home with something like Red Wall or um, you know the Book of Three, the Black Cauldron, st- uh, Lloyd Alexander, right? Yeah, uh, something like that. Like this uh, is a comfortable young adult uh, story for all ages, really. Was the Black Cauldron guy skull-headed or skull-masked? He is the, yeah, the, the, yeah, good point. He's the skull king, isn't he? I can't remember if that's his are, head or his like face. It's like a deer, it's like a, it's a deer skull, but is Yeah, it, he is has he antlers. I, I think that's just his head. He's a, he's more of a mythical creature. He's not human, I don't think. All right, I, all I'm saying is don't get Eric around that Black Cauldron. He'll tip that shit over. <laughs> he might. Eric. Eric. Hannah Blackman, uh, yeah. what if I were to ask you the same question and how would you answer go? Uh, I would recommend it to pretty much anybody if they like fantasy. And like, I've never been, I'm not a medieval fantasy person. And I really like this book. I think it's great for all ages. It's fun. It's light. It was very pleasant to read. I think it, as we've discussed, like it's good, strong and, and nice and better than the movie. So yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm sorry, my head is kind of, I tried to Google what I thought the brownies looked like. So I typed in Vulture Goblin into Google and I just got a lot of Spider-Man stuff. Mm. Oh, so yeah, I, I was like, oh, duh, Hannah. Um, so I'm sorry, I, I wasn't formulating my response to your question. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a really great book and I would recommend it sort of left, right and center to anybody who's like, oh, I'm looking for a fantasy book to read. I'd be like, have you read the original novel of Willow? Mm-hmm. Andrew Marco, you are granted in this fictional, fantastical scenario the ability to recommend books you have read to <laughs> anyone you meet. Would you recommend this book to someone who had seen the movie, to someone who had not seen the movie, to anyone at all? You know, 
I think I have a lot of friends who love fantasy a lot more than I do. Not that I dislike it. And I definitely think Willow as a universe is something I would recommend both in book and movie form. I think what I did read of the book, as you guys have sort of touched upon, is a kind of great expansion just in terms of the prose on the universe. But I also just, I sort of like the Willow universe, even if the movie is sort of a flawed work. And I'm interested to see what more is done with it in this alleged upcoming television show. So, yeah, if if you like fantasy, as you guys have all sort of touched upon, Willow is something to add to your your reading list. Over B. Yes, Hannah. If you had the magical power to recommend books, uh-huh. this is a two-part question, by the way. One, if you had the magical power to recommend books, would you recommend this book? And two, if you had the magical power to read books, would you read those three additional Willow books? So, and I'm so happy you brought those books up. I'll I'll, I'll start by talking about those additional books. So, first, <laughs> I, I do just want to read the plot synopsis of the first one called Shadow Moon, which might be very good. But on Wikipedia, it says Willow is worrying over planting his crops for the harvest. Once again, the uh, living the life of a farmer. He falls asleep, distraught over not being able to attend a party for Alora. He dreams that night of riding on the back of a great dragon who drops him off at Tira's Lean. He wakes up the next morning to find two brownies sitting at the end of his bed and that a horrific cataclysm has wiped out 12 areas in the world. So... Maybe that's, like, page one, but it sounds like half the book is about this dude having a dream, like some fucking Fievel Goes West bullshit. <laughs> Wait, Fievel Goes West is all a dream? Oh, no. First layer cake, and now Fievel Goes West. I mean... <laughs> now, if I recall correctly, that's not revealed in Fievel Goes West. It's just that in the next movie, he's like, I had the weirdest dream. I was in the West. Oh, okay. That's stupid. Yeah, um... Okay, so I would not read those books based on that description, I guess is what I'll start off by saying. Um, (laughs) This book, Willow, by the late, great Waylon Drew, I loved. I think, I don't know if it's my favorite novelization we've read, but I will say that I think it is the one that is most believably an original book not based on a movie. Yeah. If you were to just pick this Amen. up off a shelf and read and read this, you'd be like, this was written by some guy who fucking loves Lord of the Rings, but you know what? He writes like a champ. His prose are incredible. There's some twists and turns in here that are fun. Mad Mardigan is a brilliant character. And uh I think that's truly the first novelization of like the 15 we've done that I feel that way about. I think it truly fully stands on its own without the without the film universe that it's yeah i said it before i this feels like the book that the movie was based on and yeah i i do think it's the best novelization that i have read for the podcast but i did miss the good burger week so maybe maybe (laughs) good burger is is, is a lot better really ties all of those threads together i mean it's our best episode i don't know if it's our best uh book (laughs) (laughs) just to just to cap things off here I wanted to just read the the short passage in which Bev Morta dies. Just one more little, <laughs> one more little Waylon Drew uh, drop of genius. Uh, she's knocked over the bowl, which you, you know never knock over the bowl. Uh, and it says, then the lightning struck, a single quivering jagged spear that pierced Bev Morta from head to foot and stayed writhing above and through her. She neither exploded nor flamed. She incandesced. 
She turned white hot like some magic metal, and when her flesh had gone, her skull and skeleton hung intact in that white aura before they also vanished, leaving only drifting particles of ash. We have seen so much action in so many of these books that is so rote. This happened, this happened, this happened. And Waylon Drew makes a meal of everything. I love this book. I would recommend it to any person except someone who said, I actively hate fantasy. That description is of a woman getting struck by lightning and going like, uh, 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 mm. and you see her bow. Yes. And then she's dead. And he makes it so artful. <laughs> it's so impressive. It's like, it's a cartoon sequence. <laughs> Amazing. Absolutely. What a guy. Rip. Yeah, rip, rip, rip to the king. Um, <laughs> and uh, Hannah, of course, you, you know that now I'm going to throw to you for our usual uh, sign off. I'm sorry, what? Uh, and Andrew, now I know you're going to, you know I'm going to throw to you for our usual sign-off. Greg. <laughs> Greg is good. Are we supposed to be doing a rate, review, subscribe, and like? Oh! Follow us on Twitter? Things, like, is that what you want? Things that me? would be good were you to, no, I wasn't even thinking of that. I just never know how to end the episode. Um, you just put me on the spot. Things that, so I'll do my part and then you do your part that you always do. Um, so remember everyone who's listening that it's good to rate podcasts, review podcasts, and subscribe to podcasts if you enjoyed them. Uh, if you made it to this point in the episode and you didn't enjoy this, you know, get your life together. What are you mm-hmm. doing? Spend your time better. Um, and then and I'm sorry. And that goes for the hosts as well. That's- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Johnny's really like uh, reassessing things right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and Hannah, you can do the thing now. Bye. Bye. I don't know what you want.